Which version of Jeff McNeil will the New York Mets get in 2024? We'll break it all down on today's show. You are Locked On Mets, your daily New York Mets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello to all you Mays and Mets fans. You're listening to Locked On Mets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thank you for making Locked On Mets your first listen every day. Locked On Mets, free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. For the first part of the show today, I'll be talking about Jeff McNeil. He's been very streaky over the last couple of years. It's one bad year, then a good year, then a bad year. Does that mean we're in for a good year? I'll break that all down a little bit in the first segment. Then in the second segment, I want to pinpoint one thing I saw from looking at all of his stats that really shows the difference between a good and a bad McNeil season and how he can get back to being the player that he was when he was an all-star. So I'll go through all that. Then in the final segment, just going to touch on some news items, particularly the Hall of Fame voting. We'll look at how some of the former Mets stars did when it came to that process and also the latest on the free agent market. Before we get to any of it, though, I'm your host, Ryan Finkelstein. If you want to find any of my work, follow me on X at Finkelstein Ryan. You can also find some of my writing at JustBaseball.com, where I work as the managing editor. Today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Make every moment more. Right on new customers get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Just visit FanDuel.com slash locked on to get started. Looking at Jeff McNeil's last three years, there seems to be a pretty clear correlation between his success and the team's success. 2021, the first time he struggled in the big leagues, because remember, he was a rookie in 2018, put up great numbers. 2019, his first full season, he was an all-star. 2020, shortened season, smaller sample, still put up really good offensive numbers. 2021, he's just bad all year. He had you know, one good month, but for the most part, just struggles across the board. Frustrations boiling over. Uh, there was the rat raccoon gate, if you remember that whole saga with Francisco Lindor. Just a bad year. Okay, vibes, all-time low for McNeil, and the Mets sort of followed suit. 2022, he wins a batting title. Silver Slugger, All-Star, Mets won 101 games. Then last year, falls right back down to earth. Crashes, Mets, right there with him. I'm not saying that it is all tied to Jeff McNeil. It's not a direct correlation. It's not just, hey, if McNeil's good, the Mets will definitely be good. If he's bad, they're definitely going to be bad. There's other players out there. There's an entire pitching staff. There's a lot that goes into winning baseball games for the New York Mets. But Jeff McNeil is an important piece. And so I wanted to look back at last year and try to find where things went wrong. So I went month by month. And here's what I found. April, you know, you look at the beginning of the season, it was great. He hit 298, got on base at a 416 clip. Now, why did he get on base at that ridiculous clip when he hit only 298? That's just McNeil because typically you want him hitting closer to 315 to 320. It was the walk rate. He walked at a 13.3% clip. For his career, his walk rate's been less than half that. It's at 6.6%. So you don't expect him to walk like that, but it was really helping his numbers early on. May comes around, he stops walking. That drops down to a 4.4% clip. And all of a sudden, his on-base percentage goes from 
416 in April to 313 in May. I'm talking about just month by month. I'm not talking about you know, combining the two. He hit 279, not bad, but again, just a decline in performance. And the bigger thing, of his 29 hits that month, 28 were singles, one was a home run. Not that you expect Jeff McNeil to be you know, leading the extra base department, but you do think he's going to sprinkle in some doubles, maybe a couple triples, and leave the yard every once in a while. So that was a, a sign of bad things to come, and it all reared its ugly head in June where nothing was falling for him. He hit 196, got a base at a 267 clip. His weighted runs created plus was 57. Now, WRC plus measures hitters on a league average of 100, so he was 43% worse than your league average hitter. Compare that to April, where he was 39% better than your league average hitter with a 139 WRC plus. He also saw a big spike in strikeout rate. He was at 15.7%. Jeff McNeil's career strikeout rate, 11.4%. So strikes out more. He only walked at again, about a 4% clip and just hit for a really low average. Now the Mets went seven and 19 in June. Again, I don't know if you can call it direct correlation, but there is something to it. McNeil's good. The Mets are better, right? July comes around. Jeff McNeil hits 230, 309 on base, 310 slug, 78 WRC plus. Not good. Deadline happens. Pressure's off. The team isn't playing with these this massive crippling weight on their shoulders because every single game they're failing to meet expectations. He's just playing for himself down the stretch, really. And what does he do in the final 52 games? He gets back to being Jeff McNeil. He hits 303, 342 on base, 466 slug. Really, actually, got back to sort of 2019 Jeff McNeil because in those 52 games, he hit seven home runs. Now, you extrapolate that over a full season, you multiply that 50-game sample by three, 20 home run guy, that's not going to be Jeff McNeil. You want to see him hit for a higher average. That That's the bigger thing. And even at a 303 average, that's still not Jeff McNeil. Now, if he settles for something close to that, right? If he settles to be a, a middle of the great guy, the all-star player, and the guy that struggles, and he finds a middle ground in between. And he does hit 300, but he only gets on base at a 340 clip. And let's even say the slug drops a little bit. And he's a, instead of a 123 WRC plus guy like he was in those final couple months, it's more like you know 116. Jeff McNeil is still an extremely valuable player you know, when it comes to his overall production because his defensive versatility is massive to be able to start him in right field or at second base or in left field or even in a pinch. If you had to throw him at third, you could. I'm sure eventually he can play some first base. They could do anything they want with Jeff McNeil, and that is a real value, especially when you're trying to work in young players like the Mets are going to do over the next three years, the final three years of his contract. There's also a fourth-year club option on that deal. or It's technically a fifth-year club option, but he already played the first year of that contract. This guy just based on the defensive versatility and what he can bring to your lineup at its best, he's always going to be a valuable player. But there's a big difference between being an above-average regular that can play a bunch of positions, one of the best utility men in baseball, and just one of the best hitters in baseball. And you know, McNeil is getting to this point where you have another bad season like he did last year, like he did in 2021, 
And you start to have that narrative form around you that you just can't be trusted year in and year out. And maybe all of a sudden, even though it was multiple seasons of being a great player, it was 18, 19, 20, 22. You know, four of his six seasons, he has been an awesome offensive contributor. But again, two of his last three, he hasn't been. So I think Jeff McNeil's in a precarious spot. And what I wanted to do is try to figure out what happened. Like, why was there such a great struggle throughout this season? What was it that changed compared to 2022? And what similarities can we find between 2021 and 2023? Because I think if you can solve those things, you can figure them out. You get a better understanding of what he has to do to be successful. And then it's just a matter of seeing if he puts it all together again this year. I do think there's something to be said about the the weight of being on that Mets team or just being on a, a Mets team that's struggling. And I think Jeff McNeil is the guy that can press. But you can't just have a player who's a key figure on your team only be good when the other guys around him are good. Because at that point, you know, you're a player that's getting driven by other guys' success, even if it is something that propels you to being a great player in those moments. You need to be the guy that can step up when the rest of the team is struggling and help carry a team. That's what Pete Alonso does at, at, at you know a, a lot of different times. He he had it, it's easier when you're a power back. But Jeff McNeely has to hit 320 this year if the Mets want to be successful. How does he do that? I'm going to break down what happened last year. Like I said, compare it to 2021 and 2022, and try to find you know, where things can get corrected. So we're going to go through all that in just a minute. First, though, today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Only a couple of rounds left in the NFL playoffs. This makes it the perfect time to get on the action with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers are going to get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's $150 in bonus bets, win or lose. And the app is so easy to use. There's so many different ways you can bet. You go to same game parlays, live same game parlays. So as a game's going on, pull it up. You find something you like, you can still get in on the action. You can find bets at the new Explore tab. You can look at the Parlay Hub, where you can just see the popular parlays out there. You can jump on those. You know, When you're watching an NBA game, there's a lot of them going on right now. You can bet the over on a player's points, rebounds, assists, three-pointers made, combine it with the team result. You know, bet the team on the money line with the player hitting the over on points. All of a sudden, you got a nice parlay that can pay you out really well. And again, you can find the popular ones. You can just jump on them if you'd like. Visit FanDuel.com. Remember, if you do so, you place that $5 bet, you're going to get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed. Again, that's FanDuel.com slash locked on to make your first bet a layup. FanDuel, because you're partner of the NFL. When I started doing research for the show tonight, I was trying to pinpoint something that would tell me why Jeff McNeil struggled so much last year. I think I found it. I went to Baseball Savant and I saw a drastic dip in sweet spot percentage from 2022 to 2023. Now, this naturally would lead you to ask, what is sweet spot percentage? And it's something I've never actually given too much thought. Just one of those numbers on Baseball Savant. You see the bubbles. You see which ones are hot. 
you know, the, the dark red tells you, oh, he's great at this. The you know, dark blue tells you awful. And there's always the stuff in between when you look at that slider. But sweet spot percentage is something I've seen and obviously been able to understand, oh, if a sweet spot percentage is good, the hitter is generally good. But how is that different than barrel percentage? Because if you're finding the sweet spot on the bat, you're barreling up the baseball. Here is the big difference. Barrel percentage factors in exit velocity. So to barrel up a baseball, you got to hit it hard. Even if you're Jeff McNeil and don't hit the ball hard. So that's why McNeil's always going to rank pretty low in barrel percentage. That's not his game. But sweet spot percentage is a little bit different. In some respects, sweet spot percentage, which is tough to say as you just heard me butcher a second ago. <laughs> sweet spot percentage is almost a more literal definition of finding the barrel. It's where the ball is hitting on your bat. It is looking at the launch angle, really. So to find the sweet spot, you need to hit the baseball at 8 degrees on the lowest end up to 32 degrees. That is the sweet spot. So if you have someone like Pete Alonzo, who hits a towering home run with a launch angle of 40 degrees, which is not easy to do, it's just an absolute moonshot. He technically isn't finding the sweet spot on the bat. He got under it. He's just strong enough to hit the baseball out. I don't know, at 40 degrees, but you know something a little close to that. Jeff McNeil, finding that sweet spot is so important. It, it, it's what allows him to spray those line drives to you know, hit the ball on the ground and find holes, but not you know, hit the ball on the ground where it's hitting the infield grass, where instead he hits a line drive that, you know, skips right off of the infield dirt into the outfield. It's that type uh, of Jeff McNeil spraying the baseball that you know and love instead of popping out all the time. That's the difference. So for Jeff McNeil in 2022, he was in the 94th percentile in sweet spot percentage. It's when he wins the batting title. That was about 40% of the time he was finding the sweet spot on the bat. Last year, sweet spot percentage, 32.1%. That was in the 25th percentile. And to go back to 2021, trying to find a comparison between his two down years, his sweet spot percentage was all the way down at 30.4. So it shows you when Jeff McNeil's locked in, he's finding that barrel. It doesn't mean his barrel percentage is going to be high, but it means He's squaring up the baseball well. He's hitting it and putting the ball where he wants to. When that sweet spot percentage falls off, it's because he's topping the baseball or he's popping it up. In this past year, which I did note on the show multiple times, his infield fly rate was atrocious. 14.1%. That's a large chunk of your at-bats. You're just popping the ball up and getting out. And his pop-up percentage as well was higher than it's ever been. So correcting that is huge. And you look at the month-to-month stuff from last year, there was a couple of cold stretches that probably color his season and color his numbers in a lot of ways. But there also wasn't those great months either. There wasn't the month where Jeff McNeil hit 380. And that was, again, another big difference. Yes, he went to to more slumps, but he had a slump 
2022. The difference is he had months where he was so scorching hot that it trounced over that bad month and his numbers just ballooned everywhere else. Where a sweet spot percentage would be in the 94th percentile in Major League Baseball. That shows barrel control in 2022. And he didn't have that barrel control in 2023. This is a guy that relies on that. He needs to be locked in. And when he is, I still think he can be really successful. Now, Jeff McNeil at his best is a five-win player. In 2019, he was worth 4.9 wins above replacement. 2022, 5.7 wins above replacement. He is so important to this team long-term because he could be your starting right fielder. As soon as this year, if the Mets need him to, if at some point Luis and Helicuna comes up or Jet Williams and they grab that second base spot, which I think is going to happen really at some point in the next you know, 12 to 18 months, right? One of these guys is going to grab it. Having a player under contract that you can put in right, that you can put in left, that you can even put in center if you wanted to. I can play third base in a pinch. It's massive, but Jeff McNeil hitting 270, that's not going to do it for you. That's great. If if Pete Alonso hit 270 this year, he used to have a, a monster year. A monster year. 270 for Pete is fantastic because he's going to be slugging over 500. But for Jeff McNeil, he needs that average to be up. He's not going to walk a ton. I don't think he's going to change who he is as a player and suddenly walk at that 13% clip he did in April last year. That was a facade. That, that wasn't real. What's real is Jeff McNeil being able to waste pitches and then eventually get the pitch that he wants, deposit it into the outfield, collect his base hit. That's the best version of Jeff McNeil. And I do think he can find it again. But if he has another bad year, I'm telling you, that's going to start to color how we feel about him as a player. I think it already has. You know, in 2021, people were down on Jeff McNeil when that season ended. 2022, he earned all of your trust and, and respect back. And then last year, it was another slide. And I do think part of it is the vibes of the team. I think he really does feed on that because I think he's a guy that does put that pressure on himself. So if the team playing horribly, he's going to kind of follow suit. When the vibes are great, everyone's just free-flowing and, and doing their thing, yeah, Jeff McNeil can be awesome. Part of the problem with Jeff McNeil is, you know, he doesn't have the strength to bail himself out. Everything has to be in, in a fluid motion for him, and that's including his mindset. All of it has to be working together for him to get the most out of his abilities to just be a good ball player. And overall, I think he always will be a good ball player, but I guess to be a great ball player. Because Jeff McNeil, at his best, can really move the needle for the New York Mets. We've seen it. But he can't be popping up the baseball all the time. He's got to find a way to impact the baseball, not even in the most positive you know, direction as far as driving in and, and improving his exit velocity and, and barreling up the ball more. No, it's as simple as finding that sweet spot, finding the holes in the defense, which I also think was part of the problem last year. You know, the shift, I think maybe play with his mind a little bit or the lack of the shift. And I, I also think that had more fielders up the middle. 
Um, and, and so maybe Jeff McNeil wanted to stay away from hitting up the middle. I think that was part of the problem because when you're right as a hitter, I, I mean, I, as much as it's great to hit a home run in batting practice, what is like the, the swing that you feel the most locked in? If you remember back to your playing days, it's where you hit that line drive right back at the pitcher at the L screen. That's where you're locked in. And if you look at the spread chart last year, Jeff McNeil just didn't get hits up the middle. And part of that can be due to how they were positioning him. But you also look at the percentage of where he was hitting the ball. He wasn't hitting it straight away as much anymore. So getting back to just playing his game, finding the holes, but also just making sure that he has that control of the barrel and he is hitting the baseball properly instead of topping or getting under it. That's what's going to make him the, the hitter that can be feared again. And I do think it's in there for him to get back to that. But I also can't say for sure that I a hundred percent believe it's going to happen because he's put some bad years together and you start to have to pay for that when it comes to, um, you know, the respect you get, honestly, uh, but enough about Jeff McNeil. We'll see how he does this season. I want to touch on the Hall of Fame in the final segment and some other news items from around Major League Baseball. We'll get to all that in just a minute. First, though, another word from our sponsors. So the Hall of Fame voting is official for the 2024 class. Three new Hall of Famers will get inducted. It's Adrian Beltre and Joe Maurer, their first time on the ballot. And then Todd Heldon in his sixth time on the ballot. For Beltre, I don't think there's any question about that one. Unanimous Hall of Famer in my eyes, although he didn't get all of the votes, but I thought he should have. Uh, Maurer, you can quibble with it if you want to, his overall stats, but the catcher position is a little bit different, and his peak was really good. Kind of surprised he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't necessarily think he deserves that distinction, but Hall of Famer, nonetheless, I'm cool with. And I think it also shows you, um, you know, writers are voting on this and they also vote for guys that are likable. I I think this year's class in particular uh, illustrates that between the three guys that got in and also to see David Wright hang on the ballot because I think a lot of us thought he'd fall off one and done, like Jose Reyes just did, gotten zero votes. No surprise there. Morality clause, right? Good guy, bad guy. David Wright got 24 votes out of 289. And that's awesome. And I'm so happy that he's going to be on the ballot. He's going to be considered longer. I think that's great because we all know his peak was Hall of Fame worthy. If I had a Hall of Fame vote, I'm biased. Of course, I vote for David Wright. But if I decided to actually take that responsibility seriously, which I do believe if I had a vote, I would. And I had 10 votes to give out. I don't know if I would have given David Wright a vote. I don't know if he is a Hall of Famer. He's a Mets Hall of Famer. Number five should be retired tomorrow. I have number five uh, in a lot of my emails, and it was my number I wore in travel baseball. And Number five meant a lot to me because David Wright was my favorite player growing up. No doubt about it. Mike Piazza was the first one for me, him and Robin Ventura. That was when I was in my infancy of Mets fandom. But David Wright comes on the scene when I'm playing travel baseball, when I am at that age where baseball is everything in my life. And 
he was the perfect role model. You know, I really, you know, if you look at my sports fandom, David Wright, Eli Manning, and then in basketball, I've said it before, I'm a Miami Heat fan. My dad didn't have uh, any real fandom for basketball, so I picked my own team growing up in South Florida. It was the Heat because of Shaquille O'Neal first, but then quickly Dwayne Wade. Those were great sports role models for me uh, to follow. And I think when it comes to that, dude, David Wright's a Hall of Famer. Absolutely. Hall of Fame person. No doubt about it. Anytime he gets on a microphone, anytime he spoke to the media, always eloquent, always a class act. Injuries derailed the Hall of Fame career, though. That's just the reality of it. So I I don't think he'll actually get in, but I'm really happy that's going to stand about it. And I will say, if he does get in, I'm going to Cooperstown and I'll be there for it. 100%. Uh, But I don't think that day will come. So we'll see what happens, though. I have seen all the discourse about David Wright and Chase Utley. I do think it's ridiculous that Chase Utley got as many votes as he did. And the fact that he's probably going to be a hall of famer that boils my blood. Um, but I've seen other people do the, the career comparisons. The fact that David Wright's stats pretty similar to Utley's with less games played. I think part of it is that Utley plays second base or played second base. And that's a, a position where the offensive numbers uh, aren't necessarily as high among Hall of Famers as third baseman. A little bit harder to get in as a third baseman. Don't tell Adrian Beltre that, but he had better numbers than, than David Wright and way more longevity. Um, I do think that there is an argument for, for Wright in the sense that if you look at David Wright and you compare him to Joe Maurer, even Todd Helton, some respects, like David Wright was a better player at his peak than those guys. David Wright, in my eyes, was a way better player than Chase Utley at his peak. But it's not just peak. That's where it all kind of boils down. Carlos Beltran, though, second year on the ballot, got 57.1% of the vote. A lot of the guys that uh, are guys and gals um, who had votes, who wanted to penalize Beltran year one on the ballot, who you know did not want to give him that recognition as a first ballot Hall of Famer because of the sign-stealing scandal, they all came around, or a lot of them came around. And I think, you know, whether it's year three, year four, Beltron's eventually going to get in. Uh, I do think it's unfortunate. He's going to have to wait a little bit, but maybe that's his punishment for the sign stealing scandal. Um, you know, he's been punished more than pretty much anyone else for it, which is unfair in my opinion. But Beltron will get in. I think he'll get in wearing a Mets cap. Here's the difference, though. As much as I want to see Beltron in, want to see him in a Mets cap, I think if that happens, you probably should retire 15. I also don't think I would go to Cooperstown for it. Yeah. Uh, Billy Wagner, really brutal, man. Five votes shy, 1.2%. He's so close. And I wish it was his eighth turn on the ballot. It's his ninth turn. So that always leads to that little extra anxiety until the votes come out. For Wagner, it also should mean that he'll get those five more votes. I hope everyone who voted for him this year votes for him again. And five voters come around. John Heyman wrote about why he didn't pick Wagner. And as much as you can knock John Heyman, honestly, I, I appreciated him explaining his vote or his lack of vote for Wagner. He talked about a lack of playoff success, which is fair. I mean, he was not good on the 2006 Mets in the playoffs. And he talked about just the value of a relief pitcher, which I don't agree with. I think you have to reward the best relievers with that type of an honor, but it is harder 
And so I, I get it a little bit. I get why it's taken a while, but get Billy Wagner into the Hall of Fame. He he deserves it. He's one of, if not the best left-handed reliever in MLB history and one of the best relievers of all time, one of the best closers, 422 saves. You know, ERA went in the two threes. The guy is a Hall of Famer in my eyes. Um, but that wraps it up when it comes to Mets um, as far as the Hall of Fame voting is concerned. We'll see next year how those three in particular, Wagner, Beltron, and Wright, fare. Um, and I don't know if there'll be any other former Mets that'll be added to the ballot next year. But I think for a while, this is you know sort of the group that you had to look at. Delgado fell off the ballot. You could have guys voted in the Veterans Committee. I hope Keith Hernandez gets his due one day. Uh, but for now, that's where we're at with the Hall. A couple of news items. Ryan Stanek uh, is a relief pitcher the Mets are showing interest in. Talked about him a little bit on yesterday's show. The guy throws really hard. Has a lot of uh, postseason experience with the Astros. Part of some really good teams. It would be a nice addition. Uh, Matt Moore signed. can't remember where. $9 million deal. I know that part, but off the top of my head, I don't remember who he signed with. A lot of money for Matt Moore. Really good pitcher. Left-handed arm. Tough blow to not get him, but I guess the Mets never really showed interest. And then the the biggest news of the day when it comes to transactions, Reese Hoskins signs a two-year, $34 million deal with the Brewers, so he's officially out of the National League East. Kind of like that deal. Wish the Mets had signed him. I mean, gets an opt-out after year one, which we sort of knew it was going to be that type of a pillow contract, but $17 million per, not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, you look at his four full seasons right? That's seasons where he was the starting first baseman. It was 162 game sample. The guy has averaged 30 home runs and 82 RBIs. That's solid production. It's a guy that's going to give you an OPS over 800. He's going to take his walks. He's a good player, not a good defensive first baseman by any stretch, but he's going to have the Brewers a lot. And um, I think it might've been a missed opportunity to not be at least in the market for him at all to be your DH because and who knows? Maybe he didn't want to be a DH. Maybe that's why. Or maybe he wanted to, to prove he can still play first base, in which case it makes sense. He goes to the Brewers, he'll play first base every day. It's a great division to hit in. I mean, look at those ballparks with you know Milwaukee has a good ballpark to hit in. Cincinnati, a great ballpark to hit in. Pittsburgh, a pretty nice ballpark to hit in. Chicago is kind of deceivingly um a good ballpark to hit in. It's really a bad ballpark to hit in because of the wind and everything else. Uh, but it's a good division to go to for, for Hoskins, a chance to play for a team that should be pretty good. I love the move for them, um, but kind of a missed opportunity. We'll see. There's a report from Ken Rosenthal today that the Mets are more likely to avoid the DH market. It's kind of what we've been you know, discussing ad nauseum, so I'm not going to spend any more time on it, but that's just the latest as it relates to all those different news items. We'll continue to... Uh, Look ahead towards this season throughout the week. I do think I'm going to do an updated uh, version of the Mets' top 10 prospects. We'll see. I might do the Mets' top five and then move on from there. Uh, But we'll be doing that on Friday. I'm not exactly sure what Thursday's show will be yet, but I appreciate all of you who tune in. If you're listening on the audio side, please follow, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. If you're watching on the video side, we really want to get to 8,000 subs by opening day. So I appreciate all of you hit that subscribe button. If you want to be a Locked On Mets insider, our texting service, uh, you can find the link in the episode description or go to subtext.com slash Locked On Mets. And now that you made it to the end of the show, head over to the first ever 24-7 streaming channel on YouTube covering everything in the world of, the world of sports. 
That is Locked On Sports today with our local experts from each team and our league-wide experts from each team. You can find Locked On Sports today streaming 24-7 on YouTube.